welcome to my podcast, John Scott Lawton's English You Know. In this episode, we look at the issues of accessibility and disability, particularly in relation to communication technology, the ways in which information technology or computers, mobile phones, smartphones, tablets and other devices can help disabled people access text, speech and other forms of communication which previously may have been more difficult to them. This is quite a challenging and indeed even a controversial area where particularly the language of disability has to be discussed at the start. So I start with some definitions and some explanations around the words that are used to enable people to be comfortable talking about disability and engaging in the topics that I cover with my guest David Baines, a disability and access and accessibility consultant who has worked for many years providing assistive support to people with disabilities or disabled people to enable them to make the most of technology and to help them to communicate more freely. Hi there, David, and how are you? It's a long time since we spoke, but I'm really pleased to have you online. Yeah, it, it has been a long time, John. Um, Sheffield seems like a long time ago. Yes, that's where we were working together on various projects and continued the relationship in, in other jobs and all around the theme of disability, which we will talk about now. And as I said in my introduction earlier, um, we'll define our terms a bit like Voltaire, who said, if you wish to converse with me, define your terms. So we need to talk about a few words, which I hope are going to be really useful for people to understand how we're using them but equally how over time language changes. So first of all, let's pick up on this difference that you've um, spoken about in your work, the difference between a disabled person and a person with a disability. How do you see that playing out in your work? I think it's, it's a very interesting area because it, it's really about how people perceive themselves and their identity within the communities within which they live. So, some people very much use people first language and this is particularly uh you see this a lot in america uh-huh. um so they are people with disabilities or people with a disability uh-huh. but the principle is really simple that i'm a person first and i have a disability yes yes but there's also i mean and this is a growing movement particularly in england and the uk Um, which actually where people describe themselves as disabled people. And in this case, they're really saying that uh, my disability is such a central part of my identity. It's almost a cultural element Mm -hmm. of me that actually I am a disabled person. Mm -hmm. We've seen this in all sorts of other areas as well in terms of race and ethnicity, gender, where people are trying to find ways to describe the centrality of their identity and how they describe that identity. Mm-hmm. And it can be very challenging. And I think the thing that we've learned over time is that different people have different views of it. Yes. And certainly that the the movement which really gained strength in the 80s 
of disabled people claiming that identity did have a parallel with the black persons movement where black people would say you want to call me black i am black and i'm very proud of being black black is my identity and then that became a, a term um, which some people are still uncomfortable with today and we'll reference you know the black lives matters uh, movement as, as a case in point there that some people are very uncomfortable with that continuing you know they may have thought there was a case for it early on but now some people are getting tired of it but other people particularly black people would argue that no we need to continue to talk about discrimination race and identity because the issues which brought um the incident with george floyd which is obviously uh, on trial at the moment the the case is being tried in america uh, and george floyd's death brought all that to a focus because there was an example of discrimination potentially in action. And why did that happen? You know, and language does play a part in being able to talk about those events or these circumstances or this context. Um, so getting the right language is important. With disabled people in the 80s, they had a political movement which was very strong. People would object to not being able to get on a bus because they were in a wheelchair so they would chain themselves to buses so that they could actually gain access to changes in transport systems which did eventually come through i know that people like barbara lashiki the performer comedian was very involved and actively involved with that with alan holdsworth very active people um very now well respected for what they did because it was a, a change that needed to come about um, but it wasn't happening unless disabled people themselves took action. Their point being that they were being disabled by other people's decisions, by lack of inclusive design and by lack of um, political thinking or political will um, to make something happen. An inclusive design is something we'll speak about a lot on this podcast. <music> And I think it, it's quite challenging, John, um, because sometimes our anxiety around language and the use of language can actually become a barrier to dealing with some of the substantive issues uh, that people face. Mm -hmm. So we become so anxious about uh, what language we're using, it actually stops us moving the, the discussion and the agenda forward. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what I've learned is over the years is a few things that are, are pretty good. So the first thing is, you know, when, when working and talking to people with disabilities, one of the first questions is, do you need to refer to a disability at all? Yes. Uh, I remember being told off um, quite rightly many years ago, this would be in the 80s, I was taking photographs and I'd written down on the uh, photo sheet um, that photo 17 was... Uh, uh, blonde boy with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. So that when I found the photo, I knew who to send it to. And the mother saw it and quite rightly pointed out to me, why couldn't you have just said blonde boy with red jumper? Yes. And it was a great point. And it was a really good point. And, you know, maybe in, in having worked with disability for so long, that, that was the first thing I saw. And that's not right. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. do think there's also a little bit of a problem for, for many people who uh, where English is a second language because there's so much nuance related to these terms. Yes. And we don't always know or understand that nuance, that subtlety of language. Um, why is it with a disability as opposed to a disabled person? Or even more fine, I know people who get upset 
if I say with a disability, because it should be with disabilities mm -hmm. uh, at all times. Yes, because very often and quite naturally, um, a disabling condition, which is something slightly different, um, can mean that people have a number of disabilities. Um, and so want those to be acknowledged. There is the tricky, difficult area of hidden disabilities, isn't there, where people may identify as a disabled person because they have a condition um, which is not visible and people can't see it, like your example of the boy in the photograph. You could see that disability, but you couldn't necessarily have seen that he had other health conditions um, which would make him disabled. So with people with a hidden disability, myself included, it's very difficult for people to realize or understand why I need certain things doing differently or I need to manage my life in a different way because of what some may see as a health condition uh, needs to be addressed because it does have a substantial impact on my ability to carry out my day-to-day -day life. I have to do things differently. Um, and if design is not inclusive, if I can't access certain services or certain provisions, um, I feel aggrieved because somebody should have thought about the fact that um, we are all different and we all have needs and we all need sometimes for things to be not one size fits all, but therefore to be this, this word differentiation for things to be adjusted in order for it to be suitable for everyone. We talk a lot about words like diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and diversity is, is an incredibly important concept, but I think it's helpful to remember that diversity includes diversity of opinion. Yes. Uh, and people have different perceptions of themselves as well as of others. Uh, listening to people and how they uh, like to be referred to uh, is quite helpful, but also recognizing the culture within which they're working. I do think there are some problems with some of the terminology um, for people where English is a second language, because mm -hmm. some of that nuance is lost in translation. Yes. Um, yeah. And you had I think a, it, an example in the UAE, didn't you, or somewhere where there was a, a, a provision for drivers or parking? Yeah. Well, actually, no, this, yeah, it was, but it was actually on a beach. Um, and it, it caused a little bit of um, uh, a ripple on a, a few LinkedIn posts. It was mm -hmm. a, a, a notice on a beach with an arrow that basically said um, access uh, is in this, access for wheelchair users is in this direction, but the term they used was people of determination. Mm. And there were lots of people with disabilities from different parts of the world thought this was somewhere between very, very funny and very, very offensive. Mm. But these, but, they weren't part of the culture and community in which that term was used. And in fact, in the UAE, persons of determination is the legal term that is used by the government for people with disabilities. Yes. Uh, and, this and this came about about five years ago. It was a change in terminology, and hence the official sign used the official term mm -hmm. that people in the community use. And I think understanding uh, that actually language terminology is derived from community and shared understanding is important. Yeah. What I find with translation is really difficult is sometimes uh, working with people, for instance, who would say, well, I've been told not to use the word handicap, but to use disability. Mm -hmm. But they're the same thing, aren't they? 
And trying to make the distinction between the two for somebody who's a second language speaker can be quite difficult. So the secret there is just do as people ask you to do and to yes. listen and to agree. And I think to say the handicap one is relatively easy to address because that's a good example, as you say, of language changing over time. That handicapped, its original derivation, means cap in hand, which switch the words around, handicapped, cap in hand, actually means to beg. You're putting out a cap for people to put money in it because you don't have a job. You may be on the streets begging for money. So clearly disabled people didn't want to be associated with that notion and that became sort of four in the area of uh, mental handicap where again people didn't like the the initial word used there mental because they felt it was inappropriate for the nature of the uh, the disability that they had and then the handicap just made it worse because that was need to beg in order to survive so <laughs> strangely an organization i worked for still had those words in its royal title as you say that was the language used within legislation but it changed its branding to be something else, um, although it still kept the second part of the second word in its title. So very challenging, very difficult. Language changes over time. Spasticity is another one. Um, Scope, the charity in England that works with people with cerebral palsy, used to be called the Spastic Society. That term was used as a term of abuse against people with disabilities. So clearly, one uh, over time, the community campaigned and lobbied and didn't use that term spastic because it was seen to be offensive. So I think that's a good discourse, a good discussion to have. And as you say, always ask people you're working with, what is your preferred term? You know, I want to use your name. That's obvious as a human being. That's the first starting point. But then when we're talking about the issues, you know, people can always ask, um, how do I refer to you if I need to? What is it that you want me to say about you other than your name? And sometimes you might be surprised and sometimes not. Uh, just a little consideration, thought will go a long way in these discussions. Yes, yeah. Uh, I always remember the uh, the People First, as you say, the People First movement was very strong and that fantastic T-shirt that people with learning disabilities used to wear, which was labels are for jam jars, not people. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a lot there about uh, use of medical terminology as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, generally people don't like to be de defined by uh, a medical term. So I think avoidance of trying to think of people purely as a result of a diagnosis is probably not a bad thing to do as well. Absolutely. And that's where, again, in my introduction, I've talked about social linguistics. This is an area where the two models, the social model of disability and the, the political uh, model, the medical model of disability, rather, that you've just referred to, the medical model, um, is being seen now as being outdated. But consideration needs to be given to people's conditions and an awareness and understanding of it so that we can design products that are useful for them. So let's come over to that area of assistive technology, David, which is your specialist. Mm. Could you tell us um, a little bit about your work, what you do, and how you see it changing uh, in the past few years and indeed in the future? Yeah, so so one of the things that I do, um, and, and I've spent a lot of my career working in, is exploring how technology can enable and empower people uh, to overcome the challenges they experience in their daily lives. So sometimes that's in the workplace, sometimes it's in education, school or college, uh, and sometimes it's just part of independent living um, that, that people experience. And 
I've worked for a long time, particularly with things like computers and now mobile phones and tablets, to look at how we can use technology as a scaffold, as a support uh, to allow people to do the things that otherwise would be very challenging. And, you know, there's that, there's that sort of saying, and I can't have the precise quote nowadays, but basically it's saying uh, that for most of us, technology helps us uh, to do things more easily. But for many people with disabilities, technology just allows us to do things. Yes. yes. Um, and, and I think that's an important distinction. What we've seen is huge changes in that field over the last, certainly over the last 10 years. And it probably started a huge uh, thing was when the first smartphones were introduced. This technology became really all pervasive. It mm -hmm. became something that we used all of the time, it was with us everywhere. And we started to see that many of the technologies that had previously been very expensive and very specialized began to become part of mainstream consumer technologies that we had in our hand. So for instance, uh, for somebody who was blind, they used to have to purchase often a very expensive screen reader that reads out the text that's on the screen um, and it read it out on a PC or a Mac or a computer. That's now built into every smartphone yes. in many languages. So we began to see this shift from assistive technology to accessible technology. And that's been a trend that has really made a lot of difference uh, over the last few years. And would you say that that shift has been deliberate or accidental? In other words, the features that designers, computer designers, have put into those smartphones or technology designers uh, and laptops as well, as well I would say, um, and computers, is that by, by design or is it something that's accidental? Because the consequences of not getting it right are very difficult to fix after the event. It's far better if people design um, accessibility in rather than they come later but I wonder if it was deliberate or whether it was just accidental that we got these great features now that make it very possible for people to use the technology more easily or at least just as easily as anybody else. I think there are multiple trends uh, and multiple influences and pressures on that development. So the first thing is to be you know uh, as a result of the advocacy movements in different countries we saw policy and law which required products to be designed to be accessible and to be inclusive. Now, sometimes those weren't always easy to define and case law in many cases actually set those standards. The second thing is I think, you know, we did see um, a moral and social imperative to be inclusive. Yes. Um, and I'm always reminded that, you know, I, I was fortunate enough a few years ago to be uh, walking around um, uh, Disney World with some of the, the team at Disney. And we were talking about how from a very early stage, long before the political motive, uh, Disney was very much determined that people with disabilities would be able to visit his theme parks. That was his, his own social and moral outlook on that issue. Mm -hmm. Um, so that we had that. And then we had the, the third feature, um, which was the growing recognition 
of what we sometimes talk about as situational disability, mm-hmm. where any of us can experience the barriers that people with a range of different needs experience through their lives. Let me just give you an example. Um, for people with physical disabilities, the use of your voice to control a device, device is really helpful. So you don't have to manipulate a keyboard, you can dictate, uh, you don't have to press controls, you can uh, ask different devices to do those for you. Mm-hmm. That's also really, really helpful when you're driving your car, when you're not supposed to touch your phone at all. It's yes. illegal to do so. So what we saw was that in that situation, you both needed hands-free control. So for the designers and the developers, there was the moral and legal imperative to be inclusive, but actually that reached a much, much greater market and audience because anyone at times needed hands-free control. Mm-hmm. So you've got all these conflicting influences or actually not even conflicting, these influences coming together. And they are about diversity, diversity of the individual, but also diversity of setting and context, when we may need to do things differently as a result of that setting. And I think that all of those things coming together have impacted hugely on technology design. When we first met, it was because I was managing um, a project within a company which had a massive e-learning platform, the country's biggest in the UK at the time. And yet that platform itself, and certainly the courses, educational courses on that platform, were not accessible to visually impaired people or blind people because the the learning packages themselves and indeed as you've suggested the platform the the operating platform and or the learning environment in which those courses were placed could not be accessed by somebody even somebody using assistive technology at that time um so that was a major problem not least because just at that time we had reached a stage in the uk where the uh, disability discrimination act had come in and that kind of lack of consideration was deemed to be or could have been deemed to be unlawful so the company clearly needed to do something about it because it was breaking the law um so our project the one that you assisted me with um addressed that matter looked at what changes we could make but fundamentally some of the more difficult aspects that we had to face was the fact that the very design of the product had been flawed, had not been inclusive, did not think about people's needs. Therefore, no amount of tweaking it or making slight changes would help. Uh, There needed to be a fundamental rethink of the architecture of the system. And slowly that came through over the years um, after I'd left and had been described as a one-trick pony for fighting for disability rights. Um, Very interesting. It said more about the other person than me, I think. but that that I'm glad to see that has changed. And now, as you say, sometimes it happens the other way, that something that might have been designed for people with disabilities actually makes life easier for everybody else, which is a point that disabled people have been making for years. And it is a two-way process. So... Um, I think a great example is the use of captions. So captions are obviously made available on video um, to help people without hearing follow what is being said on the screen. 
Um, but something really interesting was, was, was being recorded a few years ago, which was people watching videos on Facebook, about 70% of that material was being viewed with the sound off and people just watching uh, the captains. Mm -hmm. And that was initially because of the context. You might be on a bus or a train, you might not have a headset. And actually, everybody else around you gets a little bit annoyed if they have to listen to your video, yes. along with 30 other people all at the same time. Yes. So to be polite, you switch the sound off and you watch it with the captions. It's great. But here's something else that was really interesting. Uh, and I have to say, now as I approach 60, the importance of captions uh, is really important to me, although I'm convinced that actors just mumble a lot more than they used to. Uh -huh. um, but something interesting that happened as well. We turn the sound off turn the captions on and you can double the speed of the video without mm -hmm. it being a problem. Mm -hmm. So you can follow an interview in half the time because you're just reading the text as it comes up on the screen. Yes. And then you've got people who benefit from having those two combined where there's some words they don't understand when they're spoken or written, but they understand them when they hear them or see them. So that multi-channel approach helps many, many people. So here we have an example of something originally designed uh, probably to, to help people who were deaf or hard of hearing uh, to access having other benefits. But then we have things the other end, the other way, which are really equally interesting. So um, there's, a, there's a product that people may have heard of called Grammarly. Grammarly was designed for people who do a lot of writing, um, but basically wanted a quick and easy way of improving the quality of their writing. So it checks the grammar, it checks the spelling, it makes recommendations as to how to make a sentence um, uh, more readily understandable. And it's a mainstream product, I use it. But it's also a product that got picked up by quite a few people with dyslexia, mm -hmm. who said, this is a low cost mainstream product that actually helps me address the barrier when I'm reading and writing. Yes. I don't I use it instead of a specialized technology for people with dyslexia because it's cheap and it's easy to use. Now, that doesn't cover everybody with dyslexia by any means. Microsoft have a thing called Immersive Reader mm -hmm. uh, in, in an office, and many people with dyslexia use that. Sometimes they need something that's specialist, but many of the times they find these technologies really helpful in addressing the barrier that their impairment or need has, produced, has, has led to. And I think that those things are really important as well. Yeah, that was one of the the early adjustments that could be made to later versions of Windows, for example, when people could change background settings, colors, change their own font on a text. That helped people with dyslexia to access uh, text more readily or indeed to have it spoken aloud. So there would be products deliberately um, designed to read text uh, on the computer so people could access it. So all of those things change over time, don't they? Do you think we'll ever get to the stage where technology is so advanced? And I'm thinking about this in, we spoke about language learning um, in our pre-conversation, where English teachers like me won't be needed because you can merely flick a switch. And when you go to France, you switch on a particular uh, implant that you've been fitted with, and that enables you to think in French and speak in French. Do you think we're anywhere near that kind of technology? I think the first stage, and I'm actually going to go out and buy one of these soon to try it out, um, is uh, AI-powered, artificial intelligence-powered uh, earbuds that translate. So 
Uh, I've seen these and they're not expensive. They sell, they sell for around about 40 to 50 pounds a set. And the idea is that they will hear uh, a voice speaking to you and will give you a translation in your ear in real time. Um, and the ones I've seen advertised claim to do about 40 languages. And it will be really interesting to see how much they assist in interaction and communication when you travel. Um, and I'm thinking of the many times that people can easily get themselves into trouble because they're being told to do something and they don't understand what it is they're being told to do. Mm -hmm. So they, they, they freeze, they become still. And I can imagine situations where instructions, information is being conveyed. Um, and you really just need to, you really need to get the key points really, really quickly. I can remember being on a beach in the Canary Islands and somebody came running down shouting various words in Spanish, bits of which I understood, bits of which I didn't. But it was only afterwards I, I understood that what he was actually saying was, I think you need to get off the beach, the, the mountains on fire. Mm -hmm. And he was, but he was running very quickly shouting. And I, uh, there was a, a huge fire, a forest fire on the mountains uh, there. Um, and that for me was a really good example where he was what he was doing was urgent it was important uh, we did sort of understand but it took us a few minutes to, to grasp actually what he was saying what he was telling us he thought was the best idea mm -hmm. a translation headset would have got that much more quickly to us and although we we, we didn't suffer as a result um we could have done and so i think yeah those there are these technologies and we're seeing some new technologies that i think are, are really interesting to come back to your your point um technologies such as content clarification and text clarification which begins to analyze quite complex documents and seeks to present the key points the key themes from within that document in more natural language for people mm -hmm. that can be really helpful for things like instructions uh guidance um, for me as a researcher, it allows me to pick up key themes from other people's work that has been written in other languages uh, and to check that the translation uh, that somebody has told me actually sort of reflects the key points that are there. And I can see that has been immensely valuable for some people uh, with learning disabilities, mm -hmm. um, where you can simplify the text in a, in a short document. And then perhaps then once it's been shortened, simplified, add things like symbols and images to clarify the meaning further. Yes. So all of these technologies are coming together to create ease of use in access to information, communication and interaction. For some people, it's very easy to see the improvements. I always remember for deaf students um, in Derby where children would be going to royal schools for the deaf and when they got off the train at Derby they would all be signing to each other over the years yes they were still signing of course because that was their first language but they were also texting to each other as text phones uh, or early mobile phones were being used um, you know the the eye contact and the 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 hand use of uh, the hands for signing was not reducing, but it was sometimes being overtaken by the hands being used to get on the mobile phone and text each other, maybe just to find out where they were and then to, to go on together. But it was interesting that the mobile phone technology has been very beneficial to the deaf community um, as an assistive technology initially, but now, as you say, it's used by everybody. 
Absolutely. And, and you know, we, we have stories uh, from quite early on with texting. Um, I can remember a, a story uh, about uh, a guy who uh, was trapped in a snowfall and he was deaf and he was able to text to the emergency systems. He was trapped in the snowfall inside his car uh, and the snowfall, um, he was able to say exactly where he was. They were able to locate him using his phone. But because he was deaf, he was able to say where he was, what the problem was, uh, and to know exactly what they were doing about it. Whereas a, a straightforward mobile phone conversation speech would have been much more difficult and complex to arrange to explain his problem. Um, and you know, I can remember him in the article about it, looking back saying, I don't know, but I think it probably saved my life. Yes, almost certainly in that circumstance. What about wearables, wearable technology, which um, are coming in? Do you think that they will, um, do they hold much promise for disabled people? Well, they always have because of wearable technology is something we've had uh, for as long as we uh, can remember. Things like eyeglasses and then more recently things like hearing aids and so on. But wearables are making a difference because they take this idea of having technology with us at all times um, a stage further. So um, some of the examples I've seen, which I think are really interesting. Um, so one example is a technology um, which lets your phone listen to sounds in your environment. And as it hears different sounds, converts them into haptic or tactile vibrations on your wrist or, or a text message, which explains what's happening. So it might be something really important, such as the fire alarms are going off. Mm -hmm. It might be something such as your baby is awake and crying. Uh, or it might be there's somebody knocking at your door or there's a doorbell ringing. Um, and it's very, very low cost way of giving, converting uh, information that's provided through one sense uh, to a different sense. And because it's a wearable, it's, uh, it's very much hidden and non-invasive. You can glance down at your wrist regularly. And I certainly find people using the, uh, things like Apple Watch and, and Android watches uh, more and more as wearables for things like alerts, notifications, mm -hmm. messaging, uh, and they tell the time as well, which is great. Yeah. And just um, look like a, a regular piece of kit. Uh, one I particularly like, although it's not to do with communication technology, which is really your specialist area, but are the artificial limbs or limbs which are made of plastic, which can now be 3D printed. I think that's a tremendously empowering thing, particularly for children who design them to look like Lego and they operate like Lego. You know, they, they really feel empowered by that and it's at a reasonable cost. And that's a tremendous initiative from one man in, in his shed. You know, it's a, an, an amazing achievement. Um, and I think there's some lots of, lots of things in that area which are really quite interesting. So I was talking to a group who are operating out of Bulgaria. And what they do is they set up uh, mini centers in, in countries around the world where um, the, the stump where the amputee has, has lost a limb uh, is scanned uh, using a 3D scanner. The hmm. image is sent back to Bulgaria where they design the prosthetic to, to match onto uh, that limb. Um, and then it's 3D printed and manufactured locally. Brilliant. Brilliant. This is this is a very quick and easy, readily way to generate uh, a limb for somebody 
um, where perhaps importing it and so on is could be quite difficult. And the specialist part, the really difficult part, is done back in Europe, uh, which yeah. means that the people working with it uh, back in the in the user's country perhaps don't need to be fully trained in every aspect. What they need to be able to do is to fit it, do all the fine tuning, make it comfortable and safe for the person. But they don't necessarily need all of the theoretical background mm -hmm. uh, to do so. So that helps spread and promote access in different ways, in ways that we just weren't possible a few years ago. Yes. And that's a, a really good example of how cost should not be used as a barrier because one of the weaknesses of legislation was this notion of a reasonable adjustment. Mm. And many companies prevent or didn't do things because they felt it wasn't reasonable on a commercial or economic sense. Well, it's entirely reasonable to design things well and you can keep the cost down and the benefit can be beneficial for many, not just a few, um, with a good bit of creative thought. Um, and I think that, Oh, you know, we always talked about, you and I would have talked about awareness as being the biggest single barrier to mm. access. But I think I, I would take that a little bit further now, is that, yes, awareness is still a huge issue. You know, awareness of that something like Grammarly, as we said, could help somebody with uh, reading and writing needs and dyslexia. That's awareness. But it's also about imagination and creativity mm -hmm. and thinking this new technology this new opportunity can be applied in ways that the developer never imagined. Yeah. And that's something we need to bring to the table as well. Definitely. And that, I think, um, to sort of bring this to a conclusion, although there's one area that we can't really talk about effectively on the podcast, although we should mention it, which is your work with symbols, because it's so visual, it doesn't lend itself to a podcast. And I'm conscious that even producing a podcast is not accessible to deaf people, although with a transcript, it becomes so. Um, what about um, symbols? How, what is your work there? up a, a company called global symbols um and what we tried to do was to say actually language and culture in, are important and the design of symbols for for children and adults without a voice is one of the ways in which they communicate they can select symbols instead of words uh, to create sentences uh, and express themselves but we, we we knew that one of the problems was that not all symbols are universal. Symbol for an apple might be pretty universal. An apple is an apple. It might be different colors. It's fundamentally an apple. But when you started to talk about how uh, things like family were represented, how different people were represented, the color of people's skin, mm -hmm. um, their features and so on, the things that were important to them within their community, they differed from culture to culture, from place to place. So global symbols were set up really to create the tools that are open and completely free for people to use to create and use symbols within their own communities. And um, we started with a, uh, when, when I was working in Qatar to create a symbol set for Arabic speakers. And we realized very quickly that the way people dress in the Middle East is a little bit different uh, to Florida or Washington or California. Mm -hmm. People dress differently. So actually, uh, we needed to reflect that in, in how we were presenting people. But also, we took that a little bit further. We realized that 
uh, for many people, the importance of faith in their daily lives and the importance of family in their daily lives required a wider vocabulary and a representation of the value of those things that perhaps other cultures and communities didn't need to the same extent. Mm -hmm. So we needed to build those symbols to allow people to communicate within the community they lived. So really our symbol sets were designed to help people to speak. And as I say, they're all completely free and open. They can be used commercially and non-commercially, but also they're helpful for literacy. So if there's a vocabulary and words that people don't understand, yes. you can use symbols with a, a word um, to convey meaning. And that can help people increase their literacy skills significantly as well. Yeah. So that's our work with symbols. And you can find it at globalsymbols.com. Okay. And we'll put a link to that in the podcast description. Um, I remember once having to prove uh, that symbols could be used as a bridge to textual literacy, to reading words, um, just in order to get somebody a place at a residential college. Um, very difficult because people would not accept um, the fact that symbols had value, but they clearly do because we use them in our daily lives. If we go into the airport, we see symbols as well as words. Um, symbols are used on road signs at all times. They're used on machinery, on products. So um, they are a form of literacy. Uh, they're a code. They're not a language in themselves, but they are a code. But as you say, they need to be sensitive to cultural and uh, other religious matters as well. And we, we believe that symbols need to be generated within the community that is going to use them. I'll, I'll just give you one last example mm -hmm. uh, of what we mean by that. So when we were working in Qatar, we were working with a young man called Muhammad, um, who had a uh, disability, physical disability. Um, and we were developing symbols for him to use. And it was part of the, the initial pilot. But one of the things that came back really quickly from him was what he wanted was symbols for each step in the prayer process mm -hmm. that as a Muslim, his brothers, his family, his friends would have taken part in regularly during the day. And he couldn't do that because physically he could not make those movements. Mm -hmm. So we created a symbol for each step. And you, we found what he was able to do then, he used eye gaze, an eye tracking system. Alongside his brother, as his brother went through each of the seven steps, he would point with his eyes to each step in time with what his brother was doing. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, he felt he was able to participate in prayer on an equal standing with his brother. Yeah. And that was phenomenally important to him. As a Muslim in Qatar, that was about being part of the community he was brought up in. And I think that makes the point for us that accessibility is about inclusion it's about being valued and accepted for who you are regardless of whether or not you have a health or a medical condition which leads to some form of impairment or disability um, and so you provided him with a with access to prayer which he would have otherwise been denied David, that's been fascinating. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. We've gone through attitudes, the link between language and attitudes, and also the link between accessibility and inclusive design and needing to make sure that designers and developers think about disability as they're producing products. Um, 
controversial area for some and difficult for others, but I think the language in this topic is very important. And I thank you for bringing it to our attention. Thank you, David. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, John. Mm -hmm.